you know, globally speaking about leadership and, and so forth. And, and I tell stories and then from those, there's a point that uh, cascades out. And uh, in the book, it's in the in very same format. And it's the things around, you know, the, the courageous leadership. It's around, um, you know, not avoiding risk, but taking risk on. It's around, you know, finding a journey worthy of your heart and soul. It's around those uh, type of uh, decision making and things that we've we've spoken a lot about um, uh, today already. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert international speaker and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. From unraveling criminal mysteries to advising the likes of Interpol and the United Nation, our guest's two-decade career as a forensic investigator has taken him to the epicenters of crisis in Indonesia, Japan, Thailand and Saudi Arabia. But it was the call of compassion that shifted his trajectory. In the aftermath of Thailand's hardships, he founded Hands Across the Water, a beacon of hope for children without homes or families. He is the founder of Hands Across the Water, a global keynote speaker, board director, and author of the book, Leadership Matters. With a background that weaves through the corridors of Canberra Institute of Technology, where he studied forensic science, to the prestigious halls of the University of Sydney, where he delved into law. His insights into leadership are a fascinating fusion of disciplines. Now, he spends his time not only building homes, but also helping other leaders harness the power of community engagement through corporate social responsibility programs. Beyond his incredible journey, you'll find him behind the wheel of a tractor on his farm, <laughs> soaring the skies as a helicopter pilot, and conquering ultra marathons with his faithful companion, Burton. Stay tuned as we unravel the extraordinary life and insights of a man who's walked paths less traveled. Peter Baines. Peter, welcome to the show. Uh, good day, Craig. Uh, thanks for that introduction. It was uh, I was uh, surprised at uh, hearing that ha- what I've done. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a remarkable human being? And I'm sure there's a lot more that you've got left to do on this planet. Okay. Oh, let's hope so. Yeah, yeah. Look, and the world's in a fascinating place. But before we kind of dive into the the work that you've done and are doing, I'm I'm really love to know where did you grow up and what was the big dream as a kid in the playground. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Western Sydney. So I went to school at a place called Bass High and uh, lived at George's Hall. Uh, so those out of Sydney uh, wouldn't know the, those areas. Nothing famous for anything. 
And um, uh, you know, I think when I went to, when I went through school, it was was about sport and and uh, you know, and being outdoors on the weekends. And um, you, you know, I, I spent a lot of time uh, in the bush uh, on weekends, caving and canyoning and doing all of those type of things. And and you know, as I went through school, the 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 goal or the dream, so to speak, was to work for the uh, National Parks uh, Service as a, as a ranger. And uh, uh, that never eventuated, but it was a strong desire going through school and even through work experience uh, uh, through year 10, it was still something that uh, held a strong appeal. And obviously you have a farm now, so nature is a big part of your life uh, along, uh, to, to make sure that you can get out and, and kind of make a difference to the world as well. Yeah, it's it's a, like I love the time on the farm. We've got uh, uh, two properties where we run um, ecotourism, and uh, one of the properties is uh, is our farm state property uh, where we've got. Uh, it's only a small uh, property of a hundred acres where we run some cattle and horses, and we've got uh, some glamping tents there. And then we've got a almost a thousand acres of wilderness uh, at another property where we're building accommodation there and. Yeah, I love being up there. It's, uh, you know, I think it's just the solitude and the the dark sky nights. You know, you've got to get out of uh, Sydney and metropolitan areas to truly appreciate the, the you know, the enormity of the uh, of the sky above and the stars and the peace and 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 the birds and that silence. And it's um, yeah, it's certainly a place I go to uh, uh, fill the tank and recharge. Mm, I bet. I bet. Now, when you're kind of going through your formative years through high school, were you more of a leader or a follower? Oh, I think, um, you know, it's an interesting question, Craig. And if I reflect back on, you know, different things I was involved in, I found myself in, like as a a young fella in in leadership positions, you know, whether it was in the the footy team or whether it was with scouts or whatever it was that – you know, someone saw that there was uh, a reason for me to take these positions, and uh, um, and I guess that's kind of continued through through life. Hmm. Was there someone along that way that you know, sort of, you became a mentor to you, or as a real leader that you kind of looked up to during those times that may have had quite a big impact on who you are now? Not really. Not not that come that uh, stands out during those years. I think that. Um, you know, we're influenced by both good and bad leaders. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and I can certainly reflect through the, the latter years of my policing career, some, you know, some great, uh, uh, great people who had influence on me and uh, some that, uh, you know, I observed and, and learned as much of from them as, as about what I didn't want to become as a leader, as I did from those that, that I saw that uh, had the strong uh, leadership capacities. And just thinking on that now, yeah, obviously, as as time changes and the world shifts into different areas, what do you think is really important for leaders to you know have in this in the current world we live in? What are characteristics? Courage, courage, courage. Yeah, I think the you know we've we've um, as a society, as parents, as business leaders, uh, as community leaders we look to avoid risk and uh and i think that uh 
you know, we build infrastructure within our businesses. We we create uh, environments for our kids where you know we're, we're fearful of uh, of of harm coming to the kids. And and when we take away the uh, the the decisions that they make, uh, whether it's uh, our kids or whether it's our team members or leaders, when we just wrap. Uh, people in policy and procedures and guidelines and so forth, we take away that that muscle that we develop around how to be creative, innovative, uh, to be pioneers and and um, you know this fear of getting something wrong, um, you know whether it's through uh, harm or or you know being exposed to lit- litigious action, um, you know I think we we've 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 lost uh, an element of the the courage in leaders to 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 embrace risk mm. and uh you know and 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 the contrary thing in wrapping our organizations in policy and procedure and Deloitte Access Economics did a report on this a number of years ago and they said that uh, as an Australian business community we we spend 2.5 billion with a b um meeting uh, uh compliance and governance and uh but 1.5 billion of that is self-imposed wow. you know one only one billion of it was uh was government related and and the more policy and procedure we put in place uh we actually create more opportunities for non-compliance mm. and uh, because of the steps along the way and you know i came from an area um in the the forensic uh, uh area within the police and uh and I certainly understand the need for governance and compliance and and so forth. But uh, you know, working in crisis and disaster, you know, true leaders are identified by what they do and the decisions that they make. And uh, and I think you know what we're looking for uh, in in all levels of of leadership is uh, is our leaders to have the courage of making difficult decisions and. You know, sometimes we avoid it, and that's about our our own personal image and and so mm-hmm. forth, and not getting something wrong. So I think that you know the best thing that we can do is have leaders who are prepared to make difficult decisions. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, you're growing up in nature. You talk about being out in the bush, etc. But you, you know, you delve into that world of you know forensics and being involved in the police, etc. What was the what sort of was the catalyst to head down? into that field going into university and into your early career? Yeah, so I left school and uh, went to Wollongong Uni and uh, without any purpose or direction or, you know, motivation to be there. And, and of course, without those type of things, it's hard to succeed in anything and uh, found myself uh, uh, leaving uni pretty quick smart and uh, um, joined the police and worked in uniform in Sydney and uh, my first uh, uh, location out of the academy was a, a place called Maryland's Police Station. And uh, uh, at the time, it was as close to a retirement home as you could imagine. You know, like we could go the entire night shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. without the phone ringing, you know. Mm. And, uh, you know, as a young bloke, that's not what you sign up for. No. You know, maybe towards the end of your career, that's what you're looking for. But and, and I've got to say, it's a very, very different uh, place now. But I, I, I left there and went to Cabramatta. I applied for a transfer. And Cabramatta in the uh, late 80s, early 90s was um, in the grip of the heroin uh, trade. And uh, it was a gang wars and the Romanians were running heroin through uh, through Cabramatta. And 
and it uh, it couldn't have been a greater contradiction to uh, to Maryland's. And I loved it. You know, learnt so much, and it was rough and tumble, and uh, almost a contact sport. You know, and mm-hmm. and uh, but after four and a half years in uniform, I just got sick of going to domestics and. Uh, you know, as a young bloke, you know, 19, 20, 21, you're turning up at uh, at a domestic situation and, you know, the people you're talking to have been married longer than you've been alive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it was just, uh, it was just this uh, uh, continual, um, you know, routine of, of attending domestics and dealing with drunks. And, and I went, there's got to be something more. And, and after four and a half years, I'd, I'd had enough. And, and uh, applied for a job within the, the the crime scene unit of the forensic services group, and got a job there. And 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 our role was to attend and investigate uh, serious crime, homicides, suspicious deaths, and and collect and interpret the physical evidence. and And I found it quite fascinating uh, to be involved in major crime and and uh, to contribute uh, on that level. And so dealing in you know, some really difficult situations. How were you able to separate the adversity and the tragedy of the situation versus your own mental health and well-being? Yeah, it's an interesting question and and it's something that, um, you know, the Forensic Services Group is, is identified within the police as one of those high-risk areas. And, um, you know, if there was a... If there was a clear, um, repeatable model as to how to prevent, um, you know, the, the the staff, the practitioners from uh, from having a negative impact of the work that we did, well, you'd you'd roll it out. And the police did a lot, uh, and it and it increased as the awareness of things like uh, PTSD became more understood. But a lot of it, I'd suggest to you, and perhaps you could call me a cynic, but a lot of it was was about. Uh, uh, reducing the exposure of the order uh, of the organization to to litigation and mm. and mitigating uh, the exposure and and the challenge is that um, you know I worked in that area for twenty years and and I would see people who after a couple of years um, uh, had come to the end of their time within the group and then you'd see people who had done thirty years and uh, and 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 you question you know, how do you survive you know how do you why is it that some last longer than others? And I don't think it was anything about the organisation. I think it was just, um, you know, more about the individual nature of, of the person. And, uh, you know, you, you certainly have to find the balance of of, um, of not being too detached uh, because I think the, the job that we were doing um, was an important one and... A lot of the time, we were dealing with uh, victims and their families and so forth. And and if you didn't have the compassion and empathy, um, well, I think you're in the wrong role. But mm. uh, you certainly couldn't turn up to every job. And and this became the case as I worked into the large crisis and disasters on a global level. You couldn't do your job effectively if you became attached and and uh, emotionally invested in all of them. And, um, you know, it's finding this balance of, uh, uh, and I often say the most rewarding part of my job was was dealing with the, the families mm. uh, of the victims. But the most difficult part of my job was dealing with the families of the victims. Yeah. You know, it was this, uh, uh, on, on both sides of the ledger, it was, uh, it was something that y- you could see uh, the difference that you could make. 
um, but it was also, uh, you know, taking on their pain and their grief and their loss and and appreciating the significance of their loss because we the, the situations we were involved in, it wasn't like we were a medical practitioner where you could give hope. It wasn't where you could make things better. Mm. You know, when we were involved, um, it was the worst. Yeah. You know, our, our job was measured um, and the work that we did was was around uh, a large part of it was was death and uh, and normally the uh, uh, the worst kind when it's uh, uh, humanity is at its worst. So your role is to, I would think, is to provide clarity for people. You know, they can, once they have clarity of the situation and in, I suppose in pretty much all the cases or, or nearly all those cases, it the the outcome is not a nice outcome, but it, it provides clarity and um, that allows people to go into a grieving space or to be able to at least breathe a little bit because the struggle that happens in the unknown or the uncertainty. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. And it's um, it's interesting that you say, uh, use that word clarity, because I talk about uh, when we think about our purpose of why we do what we do. And on a, on a very high level, um, I've always said mine's about providing answers. And, uh, you know, whether it was in a, in, in relation to a, a Supreme Court trial, a coronial inquest, a, an investigation, um, I was there to provide answers. And those answers might have been to the family, they might have been to the jury, might have been to the coroner. And it, uh, it wasn't about uh, my work wasn't measured in the success of criminal prosecutions or convictions. It was there to interpret the, the forensic evidence and present that to the court and you know, it was up to the the jury or the coroner to decide. And and I think that, you know, the work that's continued and what I do now, uh, I see it still as providing answers, just the questions are different. And, mm. you know, you, you, your, your point there around um, how do those answers assist? And, and it's a really interesting, um, really interesting point because I think it leads into, you know, having those most difficult conversations with people. And, uh, and I've had some pretty difficult ones, you know, and I, I'd suggest to you that, you know, sitting opposite um, a family and explaining to them that they're, or confirming for them that their their daughter has died mm. as a result of a crisis is, uh, or a disaster is, is difficult. But the only thing more difficult is to sit opposite a family and explain to them that their daughter has died um, that she'd been taken by another family, uh, believing it was her daughter. And I'm talking about the Thailand tsunami here. And and that family uh, cremated her and spread her ashes. You know, so I'm sitting there with a family explaining to them that not only have they lost their daughter, but the, the you know, that final act of burying her had been taken away. Wow. And, you know, I think our role was never... Uh, not to give this false hope and and not to offer promises and and when we were involved as i said it was you know it wasn't just a bad day for people it was something that people would never recover from yeah you know they learn to live with the loss but they don't get over the type of loss that we're involved in and and i saw our role as uh, providing information and when you provide information you get understanding and I think, uh, you know, back to that point of uh, of the value of courage is that 
you know, sometimes whether it's in an employment situation or whatever, uh, we'll avoid the conversation, we'll, we'll offer false hope, we'll tell someone to keep trying or, um, you know, keep going forward. And, and that's just about our, our desire not to have that hard conversation and say, look, I think you've reached the, the level you're going to, don't keep trying, you're mm. finished, you know, and and so we make it better for ourselves. But, you know, my experience, and it came out of the work in Bali when we we brought all of the families together who were in Bali looking for their loved ones and uh, had uh, expectations around the time frame it would take for us to identify their loved ones and repatriate them. And those time frames were unrealistic. And they were unrealistic only because those who had lost their loved one didn't understand the process. And one of the best things that was done in Bali was to gather all of those families and basically give them a a, a detailed understanding of how the process worked mm-hmm. and they left that room not with their answers or their their grief reduced or their <clears throat> broken hearts mended they left with an appreciation and an understanding because we gave them the information mm. i know working in surf life saving where i can remember back to one instance uh, in new zealand on the west coast there where we uh lost it was four members of a family in, in one afternoon um, where it was a king tide. The, the rips are huge. The sea got up. It was difficult to see. And we lost, I think it was four of them. And the whole family came into the surf club. And, and for those who don't know, surf lifesaving clubs generally have accommodation or bunk beds uh, for the surf lifesavers to, to be able to stay there at certain times. And we, we gave that whole entire surf club to to those grieving families. And um, you know, we're talking about Pacific Island families, so it's not just mum mm. and dad and one one or two kids. You're talking about the whole extended families. You're talking like 50 people mm. plus there. And I remember talking through with them because when someone drowns in the ocean, they generally will sink to the bottom first and then they will resurface a couple of days later. Now, mm. some in most cases in that beach, we knew where they would generally pop up, which is about a mile uh, north of where the surf club was and they would normally come up three to four days later however there's obviously it's still an area where there might be great white sharks etc so there are times where the body may not come and come back or you may find parts of that that um that human the human remains which is which is obviously a challenge and so you know for them we had to they were in very much a hope space but we also had to be very clear with them around the you know the likelihood of them coming back is gone mm. like it, it's very low right now you know we're i think six hours into this by that point and um, we we you obviously you've seen them gone into the water and then this is what potentially is going to happen and as you say it's not about giving any false hope or anything like that mm. it's actually about being you know here is the likelihood of what's going to happen and and then just being there to support them in the way they want to grieve or go through or not even grieve or still give hope you know and they would be out there mm. searching and praying etc but i think it was still just making sure from our point of view just giving them the realization of and clarity of the situation that they face but it's never easy right those conversations no. you can be trained in how to give difficult conversations but they're still never easy um, but- oh, absolutely not. And it's, I think you approach them, if you, you, you know, if you approach with in that circumstance you're talking about with authentic optimism 
and uh, you know because if you you know if you're giving that uh, uh, that false optimism that false hope um, uh, you know as I say I think that's about you and mm. uh, um, and you're hoping that uh, you don't have to deliver the bad news or they find out the full extent of it and yeah. uh, and I think that's just um, uh, delaying the the grief and delaying the the truth that they're going to hear and and uh, you know, I think people are, uh, uh, in my experience, in those circumstances, um, you know, we 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 either protect ourselves or we think we're protecting them. But I think, you know, I think if we give that, uh, uh, you know, the facts and that information, we get that understanding. Yeah, and, and you talk about, you know, so for those uh, listening in as well. So when we're talking about Bali here, we're talking about the Bali bombings back in the. 2002 2002 and then you know when we talk about thailand we're talking about tsunami in december 26 2004 uh, so these mm. are big big worldwide news as well so when you're in those situations you're under high pressure right something's happened mm. so there's a disaster happens there's a lot of lives at stake so you've got a lot of stakeholders involved but you have not only the pressure to to do your job and do it really well, but you're also going into situations that we've never, in most cases, never ever seen ourselves before or been involved in. You've got the pressure of international media wanting to give answers, wanting to report stuff. You've got families who want answers quickly. You've quite often got government agencies wanting to get answers quickly as well and to decide how they're going to disseminate uh, support packages, etc. For you in that situation where you've got to find clarity uh, in getting answers that are as accurate as possible, but also at speed, that that challenge of the pressure that's mm. coming out. How would you? How do you handle those situations? Yeah, no, it's a really uh, it's a really interesting uh, point that you raise, and 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 it's you know it's one that we lived uh, because I think the uh you know through bali and then through thailand it was this uh uh and and again i go back to that point i just made about that unrealistic expectation of time frames and um and 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 the need to um you know follow and understand and believe uh in the process that you have and and why and uh um and there's a point where you know through through the forensic area, we would do a lot of scenario and simulation training and so forth to to deal with incidents and um, and as a lot of organisations do, and I'm working with a bank at the moment on simulation training for their data breach and fraud area as to you know what can you expect and and I think one of the things that we talk about is. Uh, um, the 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 training that you're doing has to be reasonably foreseeable because otherwise you lose engagement. But here's the thing. If we uh, were doing simulation uh, training and we're talking about uh, recovering uh, 50 bodies or 100 bodies pre-Bali, you go, well, that's kind of the edge of the limitations that you'd expect from what's foreseeable based upon, yeah. you know, past work. And and uh, then we turn up into Bali and you've got 202 and that's certainly on the the edge of the limitations around what you may have prepared for, or and you can scale to that. But then, 
Thailand, you know, we turned up to a temple and there was three and a half thousand decomposing bodies in one temple. Mm. We would recover 5,395 bodies just in Thailand. And, you know, that's well outside, well beyond any realistic um, foreseeable uh, situations. And that's when it really comes down to leadership because it's really about not following uh, a process or a a policy or a, a pulling out of procedures manual because what you've got is so beyond anything that you're prepared for. And uh, and as I say, that's when it really comes down to that true leadership. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about um, not so much the Bali bombings, but when we think about Thailand's tsunami, and were you involved in Japan's tsunami as well? Correct, yeah. I went across there in a, in a more of a, I was invited over there, not as a practitioner, but... Uh, uh, to look at some of the pro- practices that they had in place and the the support of the the victims and the communities and and the work that they were doing there and it was really interesting um you know the contradiction uh, and the resources uh that uh, uh, were available in Japan as compared to to Thailand and the response and so forth was in some ways was Thailand, a little bit more challenging because of the nature of the place. Uh, and, and even through that, the whole tsunami where a lot of the places affected were tourist destinations. So therefore you tended to have a lot more nationalities involved Were there more players involved from a international perspective that made it maybe a little bit more challenging in regards to the, the um, I suppose the efficiency or effectiveness of that compared to say Japan, where it was more locals. Yes, there were some tourists in the area, but it was more uh, locals involved where the country, as you said, had the resources. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. You know, the the work that was done in Thailand was uh, uh, with the recovery of five and a half thousand bodies or there on five and a half thousand, approximately half of those uh, were foreign nationals. Mm. And, um, you know, we had a workforce of 450 forensic staff who came from 36 different countries. Yeah. And, you know, building building a structure uh, to deal with that uh, uh, nature of, um, uh, you know, of contributors from so many different countries and aligning to a set of uh, uh, policies and standards and, and, you know, the destruction and resources that was within the country and, and uh, you know it was it was uh, it was you know really led by uh, foreign police in Thailand, mm-hmm. where Japan was uh, you know a, a, a response that was led internally, and uh, you know the way that they supported the uh, the victims and the communities that were hardest hit was so very different, and you'd expect that from Japan, with a country that um, you know has a very different level of resourcing uh, compared to Thailand. Yeah, so, you know, for me, when you look at really good leaders in the world, they they also know when to be followers. They're also great followers. Great leaders are great followers, and they know their time and place and what is required of them in that moment. You know, when you think about, you know, talking about the foreign police, I think it was, there in Thailand who led the efforts, there would have been a whole lot of people in there that are used to being in leadership positions mm. Um, that are used to having that ability to make the final call that were now being followers in a certain extent. Mm. Yes, they had their, their time and place to be leaders in that effort. 
how did that play out? Well, what the dynamics? What was it smooth or was there a lot of uh, toing and froing where people kind of struggling to find their place? What was it like on the ground? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, an interesting observation, and and you know what's uh, um, to unpack that a little bit. It's around um, who held those positions of leadership because you don't you don't turn up into a country in response to something like Thailand and and pull out the org structure that says, okay, this is a country that has primacy. This is a country that will will lead. You know, and uh, and it's interesting as to look at what was it. Uh, and who led the response? And of course, we're in Thailand, so they're the host country, and and we're all there serving under uh, and for uh, the Thai people. But um, what was interesting was the the Australian police held so many of the key leadership positions mm-hmm. in this international response. Now we didn't arrive first. We didn't have any greater skill, experience, or expertise. Uh, we didn't have access to resources that others didn't. And we certainly didn't lose more people that in some way gave us this right to uh, take these leadership positions. And as a country, we lost 26 people. The Germans lost 500. Mm. The Swedes lost 500. The Thais lost 2,500. But yet the Australians held the key leadership positions. And, And it's interesting to look at it and say, well, what was that about? And there are a number of key things that the Australians did really well that I'd suggest put them into those leadership positions. And the first was that they acted with speed, because when you think about think about uh, this crisis response or think about the marketplace, so often when there's a gap within the market, it's the first to move that will hold that position of leadership. Mm-hmm. And I'd suggest to you that you've only got to do an effective job to retain that position of leadership. You don't have to be better than everyone else, but if you were first and you, you do your job reasonably well, you will hold those positions of leadership. And this is what happened. The Australians just started and people followed. Yeah. And as you talk about, you know, there were leaders from every country, but they saw the Australians in these leadership positions. And it got to the point where, um, you know, on one of my uh, late rotations in 2005, there was a, I was leading the Australian team and I was leading a, a, an international site. And I visited another site that um, uh, I had no uh, functional responsibility or leadership over and uh, joined a meeting by invitation. And, um, you know, towards the end of the meeting, um, the, 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 the uh, decisions makers were turning to me and saying, well, what should we do? What's your, mm. you know, what's your decision on this? And it was just because I was an Australian and we had these, um, in their eyes, these inherent leadership positions that had had been retained and and I think it's uh, um, you know it was just the fact that uh, we moved fast we we acted with sensitivity and leadership we uh, uh, we dealt with change well we had a structure and we continued to make decisions and and people followed that yeah it's important I think look when any sort of crisis hits or adversity it's you know, from a leadership position it's it's having absolute clarity on what we know. This is what we mm. don't know, but this is the next action we're taking. And, you know, decisions are made when there is no action or there is no decision, mm. that that still is a decision. Um, but I think in those cases, as long as you're super clear, you can make that. And, and you know, in those situations where things happen so fast and you yeah. have lives at stake, you, you can't, you need those people that are willing to do that quickly and just take, yeah. take control 
you know, you and command, and that's okay to have command and control in those situations because mm. otherwise it's utter chaos. Um, yeah, and we had, um, you know, you, you, that 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 speed of decision making is so important, and I don't think it's about then the expectation that you'll get it right mm. all the time. But I think as leaders, if we act with good integrity and good intent, we consult where we can and we get it wrong, we'll be forgiven. Yeah. But uh, it, you know. In Bali, we had one of Australia's very senior police officers there who was so fearful of making the wrong decision, he didn't make any. And we had to send him home and replace him with someone else who had the courage to make those decisions because we would have been better if he made the wrong decision than making none at all. Because yeah. if you make the wrong decision, well, then you can reflect and change and move in a different direction. But uh, when you're not making decisions, well, you're not going forward, you're not going backwards, you're just moving nowhere. Mm. Yeah, 100%. We see this in sports teams too, right? If you hesitate mm. uh, in a game of rugby, yeah. you, get, you get absolutely smashed. So yeah. <laughs> you're better to go with 100% intent than to hesitate. Uh, now you're in these, you know, we're talking, well, obviously we've kind of covered some big, big um, disasters, high pressure situations, um, adrenaline's flowing really, really high in those situations. But then you come back to, what would be more of a day-to-day type activity for you? How, how was that stepping out of those big projects in a way or, or big situations to then come back into something that was on a scale a little, a, a lot smaller that you might be dealing with, you know, in the suburbs of Sydney? Yeah, it's, it was, um, it was difficult. The transition from uh, going from something where, you're leading what was at that time and what remains the world's largest ever disaster victim identification response. Mm. It was thousands bigger than 9-11 and thousands bigger than anything that had been seen before. And and it's hard to imagine uh, just because of the enormity of the task that that they would invoke uh, that um, type of identification work on anything larger than that. Mm. So you're working at this, uh, you know, international level and, and on this, uh, you know, exciting, uh, challenging, um, um, you, you know, deployment where you're making a difference and you can feel that difference. And and to come home, there was nothing that would uh, that would you know match that. And uh, integration back into to work where I, I held a senior position within the forensic area, and you know, the further up in an organisation you go, the further removed you are from you know, the the operational activities and, you know, you spend its time sitting in committees deciding whether we have 15-inch or 17-inch monitors for our teams, you know, when yeah. it's, uh, you know, at, at one stage I'm, um, you know, dealing with this, you know, death and destruction on, uh, you know, as I say, the, you know, the largest global event we'd experience and then you're back trying to engage and find meaning. And, and I was fortunate where... I was invited not long after the uh, end of 2005 because 2005 I was committed to that operation uh, basically for for the duration, if not in Thailand, then supporting the the work. And uh, then through 2006, I was invited to um, uh, join a secondment that uh, took me from New South Wales Police into the National Institute of Forensic Science uh, in, in Melbourne. And then from there... I worked for Interpol in Lyon in France and uh, for 12 months I worked on an international counterterrorism project focused on uh, 
CBRN, which is uh, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear threats. So for 12 months, it was a research role where I was looking at what were the threats and trends um, in that uh, terrorism space, and then what we should do as a forensic science community. And, and that was supposed to be for 12 months. And at the, you know, while I was uh, uh, presenting my work in, in Lyon in France to Interpol and uh, like I wrote a, what was a classified paper and shared only with a few countries and then a declassified paper that was shared uh, a lot broader. Now, during my time in Lyon, I was invited then to do some work with the UN Office of Drug and Crime throughout Southeast Asia in a capacity building role. And that that's a comment ended up going for uh, two and a half years and mm. Um, and it was only supposed to be 12 months. And at the end of it, New South Wales Police uh, called me back for a meeting and said, you know, we've been paying you for two and a half years. We haven't seen you. Uh, it's time to come back. And uh, and basically the conversation went along the lines of where would you like to go? What would you like to do within New South Wales Police? At that time, I held a, a senior role within the command. And, uh, and you know, the reflection for me was um, I actually asked for 12 months leave without pay because I'd started a charity to support these kids in Thailand and there was strong momentum. And And I knew that if I went back to my role, that momentum would uh, would be lost. And, and I asked for 12 months leave without pay and, and uh, my commander at the time uh, rejected it and said, no, I'm not going to support you in that. And uh, so I took some leave and while I was on leave, I I went across to Wahiki Island, actually, oh, in nice. out of Auckland, and and uh, pontificated my future, and uh, and rang rang one of my bosses uh, from from a, a, a shack. What do you call them? The, the buck? Uh, the what are they called? <laughs> the, the beach shacks in. Yeah, I'm sorry, this is going to the top of my head. A batch. There we go. That's batch. it. Yeah, so I was in a batch and rang my boss and said, uh, look, I think uh, for me, my time is done and resigned. And and a big part of it was a, a, a reflection and an acknowledgement of how could I go back into New South Wales Police in any level and find that type of uh, satisfaction, motivation, engagement that I'd had in the previous, you know, three, four, five years, ever since I'd taken that international mm. deployment. And, and I think it was an acknowledgement that personally I couldn't find it and, uh, and and it would be wrong to occupy a position where I was there for the wrong reasons and not truly motivated and it was time for someone else. So I moved out. Hmm. And it's brave to make that decision and uh, for all the right reasons as well. So you go from providing clarity in, in, in a situation, in a moment to then with hands across the water, looking about how do you give hope for people's future. Uh, so tell us a little bit about hands across the water, how it came about. I mean, obviously it came off the back of Thailand, but how it came about and and why it's still gaining in momentum and 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 what you want to achieve in the future. Yeah, so the the origins were obviously connected to the tsunami. I met a group of kids on my uh, last deployment into Thailand, who all Thai kids who had all lost their families, uh, lost their home, and were living in a tent. And this tent was uh, in the grounds of one of the temples. and And I realised I, you know, I couldn't change what had happened, mm. uh, but I could. I felt like it was within my capacity to do something around what happened next. So I set up hands and 
And um, it wasn't just uh, myself, a, a colleague from the UK who I'd been working with. Uh, she set it up in the UK as well. And together then with other contributors, um, we built the first home at a place called uh, uh, Pa in the um, north of um, of Kaolak, which is mm. about an hour and a half north of uh, Phuket Airport. And built a home and and uh, headed over for the opening of this home and and I uh, I left uh, or I headed over there thinking my job is done and uh, my philanthropic ventures has uh, has come to an end and the home is open and and it was uh, seriously as as we drove away uh, I, I remember sitting in the uh, the rear seat of the car looking out the left hand window and thinking what happens now to the home where does the funding come from who's going to support the kids in their uh their medical needs their you know the funding for their food and uh the the funding for the staff and all the rest and and as we drove back to the hotel i think i realized that uh, the job hadn't come to an end in fact it had only just started and uh and which it had and now we're 18 years on and um the growth that we've had has uh has been significant and um 18 years on there's certainly uh whilst there's still some of the original kids from the tsunami who live within the uh the original home um you know probably 95 percent of the 350 kids that are supported across our seven locations have got no connection uh, remotely or otherwise to the tsunami mm. and uh it was just a, a, as hands grew and uh as the funding grew uh, we were able to support further communities in Thailand. And, uh, uh, you know, over the last 18 years, we've raised uh, 30 million Australian dollars. And up until COVID, we'd never spent a cent of donors' money on administration or fundraising. And in 2011, I set up a, a social enterprise here in Australia that uh, undertakes commercial activities to meet the fundraising and administrative costs. And, and, um, you know, but the real growth, I think, is is on two levels. Uh, the first is that in 2010, uh, I met a lady who was living in the northeast of Thailand, a place called Yosoton, outside of Ubon Ratchatani in the Isan area. And and uh, she'd spent 24 years of her life living there, caring for kids who have HIV or were high dependent uh, on, on um, medical support. And the problem for for her and these kids was the, the many of them came from desperate situations and uh, and when I say desperate, you know, it was newborn kids that had been left in the toilets of a service station and or at the steps of a Seven Eleven or abandoned and you know when when a, a mum uh, often a, a young mum is desperate enough to leave her child in those situations. They don't leave them with um, a birth certificates and papers and ID cards. The kids are left. And and the challenge that Mayfield had was that providing the needs uh, for uh, the kids, and many of them, as I said, had these uh, high, high uh, medical needs, was that in Thailand um, you can access the public health care system if you can prove Thai identity. Mm. If you cannot, then you have to go through the private system. Now, she had, you know, over 100 kids for the vast majority of time and she couldn't prove their Thai identity because she didn't know where they came from, you right. know. And uh, 
And, you know, the problem with the thing with where she was, was that she sought isolation, privacy and security for the kids and living in Yossetong gave her that. But as I know from running a charity, if people can't see you, uh, then it's hard for them to support you. Yeah. And without visibility, without engagement, without transparency, it's hard to raise funds. And so she was over that 24 year period, her challenge was how do I support these kids? And um, many of them, as I said, had HIV. And the thing with uh, HIV is the virus, if you go on and off the drugs, the virus builds a resistance to the drug. So it means that you need higher doses than before. And, and she simply didn't have enough funding to meet the needs of the kids and the kids were dying. And over that 24 year period, uh, she, she, she once told me that she buried 1,027 children over 24 years. And that's a number Craig, that I think it's, um, it, it takes some time to comprehend the loss mm. And when I met her in 2010, it wasn't because she didn't care or didn't love the kids enough. It was because not enough people cared or loved the kids. Mm. And, um, you know, she was forced on a weekly basis, basically decide who would live and who would die, who would receive the medicine and who would not. And, you know, I just, I finished a new book um, that was released a couple of weeks ago called uh, Leadership Matters. And, and I wrote it over January and uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in that writing, thinking and reflecting on her story mm. and the learning out of it. And and it was a, one of the things I enjoyed about writing the book was I, it forced me to pause and really reflect on that situation. And how do you how do you wake up each day, uh, continuing through adversity? You know, we all will face struggles and challenges in our life of different size, but uh, I would suggest that there's not many who experience it for the duration that she did. For 24 years, uh, the children would continue to die, but she would continue to wake up and and continue to do the work she did. And, you know, in, in writing the book and reflecting and spending the time, I came up with a number of things which I believe served her well. And one of them was that she wouldn't let yesterday define her tomorrow. Right. Because, you know, how can you how can you wake up if you're burdened by the loss of yesterday and embrace the challenges and opportunities for, for today? And but you know, when I met her in 2010, we uh um it was a relationship that formed uh quite quickly and I realized that we could do something to support her and I returned to our board in Australia and I said to them, I think we should get behind this home, this woman and these children. And by 2011, we'd stop the kids dying. And that's the way it should be. You know, all we did was provide access to medicine. We, we changed the nature of the home. We ensured all of the kids had the access to allied health services and the kids stopped dying. And so I think, you know, it's one of the, you know, the biggest and best things that Hans has done in the 18 years. And and the other measure of success is is around the future. And we measure ourselves um, not on dollars raised or the number of kids or homes that we have, because, you know, the ultimate success for any charity should be to cease to exist. Mm. Because, you know, the measure of success is that the problem or the cause is no longer is there and you've done your job. You know, yeah. it's a 
it's a it's a you know it's quite different to any type of business where uh, ultimately the success is being able to close your doors shut the website down and say there's no need for us but um you know that'll be a while and for us the so how do we work towards that and and one of our measures of success is is creating a life of choice not chance for the kids so what happens when it comes time to leave how have we equipped them supported them uh to to live a life where if they have children we don't see that second generation of kids you know and and for that a big part of that is education and uh, we've had 33 of our kids uh, from across the different homes uh, graduate from university and uh, you know that is a true measure of success where you know our first our first graduate from university he um, he studied law and uh, graduated with his law degree he went on and did his MBA and he's currently uh, in his second year doing his PhD uh, through full scholarship at ANU in Canberra. And, uh, you know, one of our girls who lost her entire family uh, did a marketing degree and now lives in uh, in Sydney and works in an advertising agency in Piedmont. And, uh, you know, her life is here. She has no desire to return to Thailand. And so for us, it's looking at that... Um, that measure of success and the opportunities that are before the kids and investing in 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 that that's beautiful to hear those the the choices that those people have now versus just kind of leaving their life up to chance i, I really like that distinguish you know giving them choice not chance which is fantastic now you talked about your the writing the book leadership matters and you talked about writing it in january that's mm. impressive to to put it together in a month, um, definitely you're an action taker. Mm. Uh, so what, what were the, the key things that came out of writing that book that all leaders should know about? Uh, I'd be a bit arrogant to suggest that all leaders should know about it. I think the, you know, the joy in writing the book was that, um, you know, it was something that it's my third book and I really enjoyed the process of, of writing and, and um, uh, it came together uh, quite quickly. And, uh, and, you know, the book is about the learnings and reflections that I've had from working with leaders, achievers and visionaries. Mm. And I look at, um, you know, different people who have been influential and impacted my life Um and, and what it was and through looking at a leadership lens. So the book is very much in the format of, uh, of uh, stories uh, with points. And, uh, and that's how I do my, my keynote presentations where I travel, you know, globally speaking about leadership and, and so forth. And, and I tell stories. And then from those, there's a point that uh, cascades out. Mm. And uh, in the book, it's in the in very same format. And it's the things around you know, the, the courageous leadership, it's around, um, you know, not avoiding risk, but taking risk on. It's around, you know, finding a journey worthy of your heart and soul. It's around those uh, type of uh, decision making and things that we've, we've spoken a lot about um, uh, today already. Yeah, I love that as well. And I think, you know, courage is, a, is starting to be spoken a lot more of recently around the importance of having that courage to take risks, to have those difficult conversations, um, you know, to, to provide choices, not chances, uh, leave things up to chance in life. And I really like that, that component. Um, 
with regards to the, you know, you talk about speaking as well. Um, for you, what do you find fulfilling about speaking on stage and, and sharing that message? What is it about it that you enjoy? I find it, um, you know, the very fact that um, there are so many speakers out there, you know, and when a client decides that I'm the right fit for them, I find it uh, uh, humbling. Mm. And uh, the fact that uh, that I've, they see worth in the story. And it was a really interesting um, uh, entry into the speaking circuit for me. I, uh, in between my tours of Thailand, uh, I was introduced to a fellow by the name of Matt Church mm. and... Um, um, I had lunch with Matt and he spoke about the speaking circuit and what could be done. And and uh, he said, you know, clearly you've got a story. It's just whether you can tell it. And yeah. uh, and I walked away from the lunch and Matt knows this. Um, and I dropped his business card in the bin because I thought, you know, this guy is, uh, this can't be true what he's talking about. I'm just in the police. What yeah. could I possibly have to offer uh, those in banking, real estate, finance, whatever. And um, And it was only when I met the kids living in the tent and I, and I decided to support them. And I thought, how am I going to raise this money? Um, I, I, I was just in the police. I didn't have a corporate network. I'd never done fundraising. And, and, and I reflected and I thought if half of what Matt said is true about the speaking industry, well, that's how I raised the money. Mm. And I got back in contact with him and, and he supported me on that journey. And, uh, and I started speaking and getting paid uh the, the the type of money that speakers get and that was how i contributed to the building of the first home mm. and uh you know 18 years on um i'm still fortunate to be invited once or twice a week to travel to somewhere to speak to some group um uh, on you know the experiences and you know the experiences over the last 18 years have have changed and grown and and um you know i continue to get invited back to different organizations that i've spoken with and because of the evolution in the story and the learnings and and um you know and i as i say it's incredibly you know humbling uh, to do that and i find a deep connection uh, to the story and uh you know i i remember when i first started speaking i was speaking down at wollongong for a local government conference and and uh, one of the speakers was someone that I'd admired from a leadership position uh, because of what they had done in their career. And I just admired them and had run um, like a workshop based upon their book within their police for the team that I was leading. And such was the, you know, the adulation I had for this person. Then I saw him speak and I saw the way that they um, walked off stage and and I, and I was um, extremely disappointed and disillusioned and, and just saw the lack of care and mm. um a, you know investment in the what they'd just done and i thought if ever i get to that point where i'm not nervous or i'm not caring um then it's time to stop speaking because you're not providing the best you can be for any audience and you know i was on the gold coast speaking yesterday and and it's um you know the the you know the enjoyment the attachment the the value it's as strong as it ever was and and i still get nervous because i value the audience i value the opportunity and i think for hands the you know mm. it's the, the, that's where there's so much distribution like i don't i don't ask for donations i don't tell people this is how they can donate i don't seek anything from them but i share experiences i talk about the bike rides that we do in thailand uh, 
you know, just share stories. And that's where the growth comes from. And so it's incredibly important for hands that I, I, I speak. I love it. It provides my source of income uh, these days and allows me to travel and and uh, interact with um, with different people, different communities. And and I see, you know, the impact. Like in the book, um, I talk about two, uh, two women that I rode with in January of this year and um, they came from uh, or they're in uh, their medical clinicians and and uh, came and rode and and they shared with me the story that they'd seen me speak 10 years prior yep. and they'd heard about the bike ride and said, you know, we want to do that one day. And it took them 10 years before they got to the bike ride. And mm-hmm. and then the impact it had on their their life in January this year and the commitment that, you know, they're coming back to ride with us again. They're deeply involved in the organisation. and But that was a journey of 10 years. And, uh, you know, I find that you know, hugely um, gratifying and, you know, humbling to think that a message you could share 10 years stays with someone. Yeah. They take action 10 years on and the impact it's had on their life is profound. Yeah, amazing, amazing. That's why listeners, he's uh, Order of Australia Middle, mm. is that correct? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, correct. Um, your amazing humility, I can hear it in your voice and throughout this whole conversation. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was Mm. the last time you did something for the first time? Well, let me, uh, let me put this down as um, it may not, the action may not have uh, um, taken place yet, but the commitment has. And uh, uh, we're approaching 20 years uh, for the tsunami. And um, um, in some way, it's hard to believe that that passage of time has uh, has passed so quickly. And, mm. and as we look towards that 20 years, it, personally, I feel like it's been a journey that needs some acknowledgement. And, uh, you know, I've uh, led 35 uh, bike rides in Thailand from 500 kilometres to 1,600 kilometres and you know, I've had amazing experiences there. And, and as we approach the 20 year anniversary, I think, you know, what can I do that is significant? What can I do that is um, part selfish? What can I do that will raise awareness and, and hopefully raise money and, uh, you know, set the charity up, particularly in Thailand for future growth. So what I'm doing for the first time is I made a commitment and I'm going to run from our home in the northeast to our home in the south. Um, I will leave on the 1st of December uh, next year and I'll arrive on Boxing Day uh, 2024, which is exactly 20 years later. Now, the run is a distance of 1,320 kilometres and over that period of 26 days, I'll run um, over 50 k's a day. And... uh, You know, for the last four or five years, I've been doing a couple of um, uh, ultra marathons uh, uh, each year, and uh, so, uh, so for me, it's the commitment uh, to do that, which is uh, uh, the first time I've made a commitment like that. Uh, now I've just got to execute. <laughs> yeah, oh, I love it. I love the adventure and the courage that takes to do something like that, but uh, all for a, a really important uh your purpose in life so yeah well done what is the one question that you would love to solve 
Oh, the one question that I'd love to solve. Um, that's a big question in itself, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I don't know, like I, um, I don't know. You've, you've got me there, Craig. I don't know what, uh, what, what the question is that I'd, uh, I'd love to solve there, you know, some, I guess it takes me to, to Thailand and, and, um, you know, and I, I think about the the best of humanity that I've been exposed to, and and I also think about the worst of humanity that I've been exposed to, and uh, and it'd be nice to be able to answer that question of, and then change why uh, why we can be so cruel uh, at uh, at different times, and why we don't um, um, you know live a a more forgiving um, and understanding and empathetic, uh, empathetic uh, uh, life. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's a big question. So, well, I think your answer was a big question. So we'll, we'll keep that one. That's a good one. Uh, who is an ins uh, for you? What is an inspiring great leader, and who is a great example of this for you? Mm. So I'm going to answer that question with uh, in three answers i'm going to refer to um a good mate of mine and uh a, a, an insightful uh, person by the name of darren hill who runs a company called pragmatic thinking and uh him and his wife ali are unfortunate to call you know really good friends of mine and and uh we're speaking um at a conference together just recently and darren talked about um, heroes and inspiring people and uh, it's his words not mine but I couldn't agree more and he talks about you know that inspiring leader that true uh, you know hero is is the single mum who is uh, raising a couple of kids uh, working to support those kids and is studying at night to uh, to better herself and create further opportunities and I think you know that's uh, you know it's a really um you know beautiful insight into those who um face significant challenges but continue to look to do better mm. and and i love that reflection from from darren um you know the 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 other you know people for me is uh, uh one was a man by the name of peter walsh who was an assistant commissioner within the police in which i worked and and it's a it's a it's a real example of something that remains so strong in me. I worked at uh, Tamworth Police Station in regional New South Wales, and I was attached to the major crime um, area within uh, the northwest. So our command was completely different structure, and for all intents and purposes, I was just a tenant within the Tamworth Police Station. Mm. So the uh, local police station had no functional reporting. We had no connection to them at all. We were just a tenant in their building. And Peter Walsh looked after Tamworth Police Station and a whole lot of police stations throughout the northwest of New South Wales. And, and you know, the commander of the Tamworth Police Station um, never came into our office, never walked in, had no reason to. But Peter Walsh, who was the commander of, um, of Tamworth's uh, boss, every time he would do a tour and come through Tamworth, he would come into our office mm. and he would walk in and say, Pete, how's the kids? How's little Walkie going? And uh, he cared. There was no reason for him to walk into our office, but he would walk in 
and he would ask about our welfare, ask about our families, and uh, and it was a man who demonstrated true leadership and presence. And 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 by him coming in, um, I believe he understood our challenges, and he demonstrated to me that he cared. And and I think you know one of the greatest questions that we can ask of uh, as leaders is how can I help? Yeah. And that was uh, what Peter did, and I remember him fondly. And uh, but the commander of the Tamworth Police Station, you know, it was a reflection on someone who was um, only there to serve himself, and and I think was uh, quite a poor leader. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Look, it's it's been fascinating speaking with you today, and, and look, I could have many more conversations, and hopefully, with that now that you that I know that you live just down the road, yeah. uh, maybe we will catch up for a few coffees. I'd love to run Absolutely. with you, but my legs, um, my body gave away a few few too many years ago. Um, well, Craig, there's always the uh, leaders in motion ride, which sounds like it's uh, right up your alley. We're running in March of uh, of uh, 2024, a five day ride through Thailand, and and the focus of the leaders in motion ride is that we'll be riding with a number of thought leaders who will host right. each day along with myself, and uh, uh, so people who might be interested in a in a memorable shared experience. Uh, and those who have dodgy knees, this is a good way for them to join us. <laughs> ah, yes, I've, I've done plenty of miles on the bike. All right, let, let's talk about that later on. But <laughs> you've shared so many great insights. Uh, for people uh, who have found you fascinating and, and want to know more, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for them to connect? Yeah, just my, my website is peterbaines.com.au or through uh, handsacrossthewater.org.au. And of course, we're on, you know, personally and the organization on LinkedIn and socials. And uh, these days, it's not hard to track people down if you're interested. Ah, that's awesome. I love that. And we'll put those in the show notes and um, so people can find them easily. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You have experienced some extraordinary times in our generation um, around the world and been able to provide great impact to so many people in ways that, you know, of news they may not want to hear, but they need to hear to help them find clarity, allow them to grieve and move on in the world. Um, Your heart is overflowing with amazing humility and care for people. And it's, it's fascinating to watch people who not only get in and do a job and, and look after their own family, but are out there to support other people's families. So, the next generations can lead a better life and be able to uh, have some opportunities that that some may not have, um, you know, in earlier, uh, earlier, earlier. Uh, so I suppose places, in, you know, earlier. Uh, I can't think of the word right now. Generations. There we go. Earlier generations. Um, exciting to hear what you're doing over the next couple of years in regards to the 20 year anniversary of the. Uh, tsunami there in Thailand and across the Southeast Asia region uh, and continuing to contribute through Hands Across Water. You're a remarkable human being. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure our listeners have too. So thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, My absolute pleasure and thanks for the time and the opportunity, Craig. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders Movement by visiting Craig John's .com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders. We would love it 
if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong. <laughs>